Well, hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Michael, and I work here as the director of students, which means I get to hang out with 13 and 11-year-olds. I also get to hang out with high school ministry, and my wife and I love it, man. We love getting the chance to point students toward Jesus and to um, invest in that way, to partner with you in that way. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be in the book of Luke. And my hope for us as we walk through the text is that by the time we are done here, we would have a bigger picture of who God really is. And the truth is, is that he's king. We're going to see that all throughout the text this morning. But before I go in, maybe some of you, if you've ever been on the internet, you've seen stuff like this. Expectation versus reality. Now this here, you know, this lady, she looks, she's like happy. She's sleeping with her dog. It's like a, you know, Labrador golden retriever mix, something like that. She's just like, she's chilling. It's great. This is like an expectation. I had a dog growing up named Joy. All right, I didn't even know Vintage Grace existed when that happened. She was an angry beagle, all right? This never would have happened. This is like the reality, right? Any of you who ever tried to sleep with a pet, you wake up, just like right in the face. How about this one? Like thinking about waking up, like, all right, I'm going to get an extra hour of sleep tonight, go to bed on time, just be like, oh, man, this is great. And then when you wake up, here's the reality. This, Right? Nine times out of ten, this is my face in the mornings, all right? My wife and I wake up really early. Uh, She works early in the morning, and so this is my face like every day. It's great. So expectation versus reality. It's, it's true on the internet. It's also true in real life, right? I mean, for us, when we, were, when we were down at this restaurant in Orange County, it was for our honeymoon, and I had this buddy. His name is Steve, and he hooked us up with a bunch of really sweet places to go for our honeymoon, to eat. Everything was good and great until the last night. And it was kind of um, described this way. It was like a mountaintop dining experience, and like you could look out the windows, and there were all these lights, and you could see all this like stuff in the surrounding area. And we were really excited for it. So we head over to this restaurant. And we arrive, and you had to, like, go through all these, like, weird stairs and all these different rooms to actually find the room because it was also, like, a venue. It was really confusing, okay? So we get in there. We sit down finally. And my poor wife, like, she's wearing this nice little dress, and we're sitting there. And we're sitting under one of those air ducts. It was just, like, (laughs) cold air the whole time. She's, like, freezing. But we're, like, oh, if we move, we don't get to see the mountains. So what's the, how do we do this? And so we're sitting there for a while, and they bring us a menu, and we pick our plate, and we're, like, ready to go. And the people show up, and they bring the plate. They set it down, and it was empty. We were a little bit confused. We're, like, why is this empty? Like, oh, you serve yourself here. We're, like, okay. And so we pick it up, and we walk over to this, like, buffet thing. And it was, like, a lame Rip-off version of Fresh Choice, okay? I'm sorry if you like Fresh Choice, okay? I know some, some people might like it. There's a reason they're going out of business, all right? So we went and we got the stuff. Like, the lettuce was, like, day-old lettuce. It was really gross and dilapidated. And we, like, put some, like, ma- you know, mashed potatoes on the plate. We get back. Mashed potatoes were cold. Cold mashed potatoes are a bummer, all right? Nobody likes that. And so we had a total mis-expectation, right? Everything Stephen set up for us was awesome except for this one. But here's the thing. Expectations and realities, it happens all throughout life, right? Especially in relationships. Maybe in a marriage relationship where it's like, hey, you're the trash guy and you take care of the trash. And you're like, I am? I didn't know that was my job when we did this thing. That's why premarital counseling exists. Guys, if you're planning on getting married, uh, we do that. We'll help you walk through roles. So there's expectations, right? Maybe expectation on kids, 
who they're gonna be, what they're gonna do, how well they're gonna achieve at school, what friends they're gonna have, who they're gonna hang out with. And there's so many expectations. And then there's the reality, right? Maybe with a doctor, you're like, I give you money, you fix my problem, right? Or maybe a bank, you go to them, hey, you give me a lot of money, I'll pay you back in 35 years, maybe. So expectation and reality. And what we're gonna see in the text is something that if we're not careful, we can do with our relationship with God is we can actually put our expectations on to him. And we can look at our relationship with him in this kind of formulaic way where we think, well, if I just pray enough times during the day, if I do like, you know, morning, afternoon, night, maybe God will bless me. Or maybe for you, it's like, all right, if I, if I just kind of work on this sin issue in my life, then things are really gonna work out with me and God. Like things are gonna be great, I'm gonna be blessed. Or maybe it's like if I sign up on a serve team and I get in a life group and I show up to church 2.3 Sundays, like that's over the average. So you guys know, like you guys are doing good if that's happening. You're like, all right, God's going to be good with me. But if we set up our life that way, you're going to be disappointed because the reality is that God is in control and God is king. And us trying to set up life or do this input output thing with our relationship with him is not the way that he was designed to work. We're designed to submit to him as king. And there's so much joy in that. And the people in the text needed that. Because okay? they all had expectations that they were coming into this thing with. And we're going we're gonna to see that really clearly. They need it, and we need it, if we're honest with ourselves. We need Jesus as king. And so we're in Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 40. You guys can turn there if you want. And we are, if you've ever been around church, this is like the triumphal entry. Okay, this is the thing right before Easter where, you know, they have the palm fronds and the pastor hangs out and carries a palm frond. Maybe that's not you. Okay, that was just my life growing up. So we're talking about that text. And so for those of you who are familiar with it, this is the moment leading up to his climactic entrance into Jerusalem. It only took us 79 weeks. Pretty good. That's just about as long as it took Jesus. So we're, we're ramping up to it. And this morning, here's what we're going to see. This is the moment that the followers of Jesus have been waiting for. It's this great moment where Jesus makes his way triumphantly to Jerusalem on the back of a cult, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And in the disciples' minds and in the multitude's mind, Jesus has come to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to bring like a can of you-know-what and open it up on them, and it's going to be great. But the only problem is it's not exactly what's happening here. Jesus is in control Jesus has a plan, and he is doing what he's doing so that he can set us up with a spiritual conquering, not this, like, political thing that they were looking for. And so here's the deal. Jesus expectantly comes not to fulfill our expectations, but to meet our needs. We're going to see that throughout the text this morning. And he may not be the king that we want, but he is the king that we need. We're going to see that all throughout the text. So let's, let's pray. This is a picture from AD 33, um, first picture ever taken, and it's of Jesus. So that's for you guys. We're going we're to throw this up on the screen so that when we read it, um, I want us to just kind of imagine this happening. Okay, imagine this, this thing happening. We got Jesus on his donkey. That halo thing probably wasn't there. It's overexposed. And then you've got these people standing around. I want us to imagine this, to picture it as we're reading. I'm going to start in uh, verse 28 of chapter 19. And when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. 
Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of them who were Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the text this morning. Let's pray and we'll jump in. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We thank you that you've given us to know you for who you really are, not a version of you that we want to present or a version of you that that we wish we had, but the, the true King Jesus. And I pray that as we walk through this, God, you would do that work in our hearts. We would see how some of these simple things that happen here really point to you being in control. They point to you being king. And God, I pray that as we dig through this, you would help show us the places in our lives where you're not on the throne and that we've got to put you on the throne. Jesus, we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. So verse 28 says this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So these things, Jesus is talking. He's referring to last week. If anybody was here last week, we were talking about the parable of the ten minas, right? And the disciples, the people who were around him were saying, oh, is this the time? Is this when you're going to set up your kingdom? You're going to get this thing going? And Jesus tells them a story explaining this thing about a nobleman who goes to a faraway place to receive a kingdom, gave his servants something to do, to engage in business, to steward something they've been given. And there's these citizens who don't want the king to be king when he comes back. And so on the nobleman's return, we see him judge those who had been left, whether they stewarded what they had well or not. And we see this message of what Jesus is doing. He's actually setting something up for them so that they don't miss the fact that this isn't going to be the time when he, like, sets up his kingdom and when he establishes his throne on the earth. Right now he's coming in as a spiritual conqueror. And so he went on ahead to them up to Jerusalem. Like I said, it was like 79, 78 weeks leading up to this point. This is one of the pinnacle moments. We've taken about three years to talk about the life, or sorry, two years to talk about this idea. And now we're coming up to the last week of Jesus' life. And we're going to hang out here for a long time. We're going to look at it for the next few months. And we're going to see in these six days, in these seven days, what Jesus does. And how he shows that he's king in every single thing that he does. And how he proves that he is in control. That's where he's going, to Jerusalem. It was always a part of the plan. That's where he's headed. And then it says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat yet. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why, say the Lord need it. So here's what Jesus is predicting. Number one, the location of a donkey. There's a donkey somewhere. Go find it. For those of you who are wondering why we're calling the colt a donkey, it's like a, that's how it was translated in different ways. It's colt, donkey, it's synonymous here. It's a, it's a young donkey. So there's a donkey hiding somewhere. Go find it. Step two, it's going to be tied up somewhere. Go get it. Step three, it's unridden. Now, for you equine enthusiasts in here, 
Thank you. Um, you know that riding an unridden horse is a bad idea. An unridden baby donkey, probably an even more bad idea. And there's probably some confusion as to how does Jesus do it? I don't know. He's Jesus. And he's in control. And he can ride this donkey. And the reason why this is important is because the donkey being unridden would have meant it was like ritually pure. Nothing had been done to taint this donkey. It was a pure donkey, and it was set aside for something. So they go to find this donkey. And then he says, here's how you're going to convince the owners. This is what you need to say to get the donkey. And so this, this thing that he said for them to say, the Lord has need of it. He's not saying the Lord in the way that, like, the Old Testament uses the phrase the Lord where it refers to Yahweh. It's like they didn't want to write Yahweh, so they write the Lord so that when you read it, you wouldn't profane the name of God accidentally. So what he's talking about here is actually a master or a ruler. And this was actually kind of common that a master or a ruler would ask for an animal when going through. So either way, Jesus is exhibiting his control over the situation and his confidence in the animal's ability. But there's something else going on here that the people would have known. And it was based off of this really old story from Zechariah 9.9, which answers the question, why a donkey in the first place? Here we go, Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your what? Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a what? Whoa, and a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. How cool is that? Like, it predicted this thing exactly as it would happen. And then Jesus shows up. He's on his way into Jerusalem, you know, Zion, this whole thing they're talking about here. And he says, go find me this colt of a donkey. That's sweet. I love stuff like that because it was written so much earlier than when it even happened. And another great thing about it is it totally flies in the face of their expectations. Because here's what they probably would have expected. Some type of like conqueror, he's going to come in on a war horse, right? Some type of thing that could challenge the Romans. And yet the reality is he comes in on a little donkey. (laughs) It seems kind of silly to us, right? And Paul says that it's like the wisdom of God that looks like foolishness to the world. And yet what he's doing here is he's showing that he's in control and he's showing that he's king. And so the disciples go on their way. They found it just as he told them. How neat is that? Great job, disciples. We're proud of you. You went in there. You went into town, past the Starbucks and the gas station, walked right up to the Enterprise, and there it was. The cult of a donkey, no miles on it, brand new. It was like the easiest signing you ever had to do. You walk around the donkey, yep, looks good, yep, no scratches, and they get the donkey. The only thing they had to do for the rental agreement was say, the Lord needs it. It's pretty sweet. But here's what's happening. For, for those of us who, who nerd out on this kind of stuff like I do, um, this was actually customary. So right now when we're looking at this story of Jesus, there's this feast going on, this huge party. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. People are looking forward to the coming of a future Messiah. And during this time, lots of people would have been making their way to Jerusalem. And so what would happen is in little towns and cities like this, people would leave animals tied up if someone needed it. It was like a form of hospitality. It was a form of kindness. And so the owners probably saw it as a really great honor that they got to help out some rabbis or some famous rabbi named Lord. And then the animals were left there for that, and Jesus was a rabbi, meaning he could ask for a colt, which was kind of sweet. Now, some of us in here might be kind of twinging a little bit because, like, wait, wait a minute, I thought he could take the colt because he's Jesus. They're not mutually exclusive. 
Like, he is Jesus. He is in control. He knew the donkey was there. He predicted the donkey was there. He told them exactly what to do to get the donkey. And it's a cultural custom. It was something that was actually kind of expected. And yet the point here is that Jesus is in complete control. It's not an either-or choice. We don't have to come up against these kind of things in the Bible and think, oh, man, like, rethink the whole thing about who Jesus is. No, it's, it's great. He's showing his rule and his authority, and it's a norm in their culture. And so something I want to highlight from this that the disciples do is I'm really proud of them, right? The disciples OST. For those of you who don't know, OST is an acronym that we use around here. It stands for Ongoing Spiritual Transformation. It's a mouthful. It's awesome. So the reason why we say OST is because that's long, and it's a way to describe what it means to follow Jesus. It's the process of following him, of finding more joy in him, and then that joy flowing out from us toward others. And at this point, the disciples are doing a great job. I mean, they went and did exactly what he said. Word for word, they said exactly what he asked them to do. Now, for the disciples, this is a bright spot in their journey. But for the rest of us who know the story as it goes, it only takes them like a week to totally abandon Jesus. There's only one of them who sticks around. But a week later, after this kind of, you did it, you're on it, they, they leave Jesus. And I think there's something to be said here about setbacks. Anybody ever dealt with a setback? Yeah, come on, when we're like trying to follow Jesus and trying to grow in our faith, maybe you're fighting an addiction or you're trying to improve a relationship or or maybe you're trying to just deepen your trust in God and then we mess up. And if we're not careful, we can be tempted to think that God doesn't want anything to do with us at that point. And yet God never gives up on us. He never gave up on the disciples and he doesn't give up on us. Instead, we know from the story that he ends up using these guys who abandoned them, who turned his back on them, to start one of the greatest movements in history. It's the reason why all of you are sitting here in this room. And so Jesus is in control. Even when we feel like we're winning, and even when it looks like we're losing, he's still king. That never changes. And so when they're praising him and when they abandon him, that reality is still going to stay the same. And so I want to just encourage you guys, if, you're, if you feel that way, if you're getting weighed down by like a setback or feeling like you keep taking one step forward and like three steps back, like don't give up. God's not going to give up on you. He has a plan for you. He's in control. He's doing what he's doing. And he's going to draw you to himself. So it continues. They bring the donkey to Jesus. They show up. They're like, all right, Jesus, here you go. And then they throw their cloaks on the donkey, kind of making a saddle of sorts. And then this is kind of an interesting point. It says that they set Jesus on it. That's kind of peculiar, right? Like, Jesus is 33. He's a grown man. He can get on a donkey if he wants to get on a donkey. But here's what Luke's getting at. Luke is trying to make a point that Jesus is king. Right? This is what they would have done with a king. In the ancient Near East, this is what they did. They'd take the guy, they'd lift him up, and they'd put him on the mule or put him on whatever animal he was going to ride. It was a way of showing honor, of paying homage to the person. So he's making the point again, Jesus is king. They set him on the donkey. And as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is another example of just showing that he is king, of honoring Jesus. Now, some of you in here, anybody in here skeptic? No, everybody's afraid to raise their hand. It's good. Everybody here has the gift of faith. That's great. So I'm kind of a skeptic, all right? I'll be, I'll be open with you guys. I am. I, I'm kind of a skeptic. And for me, sometimes when I read through scripture, I ask questions like, Where's the palm fronds? Anybody wondering that at this point? Where's the palm fronds? Because I thought like in you know, every other story, there's palm fronds. And so sometimes when we read through something, we can start to doubt maybe. Because you're like, well, Matthew said it this way. Mark says it this way. Luke says it that way. What's going on here? 
the, the witnesses, the, the people who write the gospels, they had a very specific point in mind. Right? They had a point in mind. There's a reason why the palm fronds aren't here. Luke is writing to a totally different audience than Matthew was. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience who would have seen the palm fronds. They would have been like, oh, yeah, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, man. We got our palm fronds from last year. Like, they would have got it. For his audience, he's writing to Theophilus. He wouldn't have, it would have been kind of lost on him. And Jesus is making a different point. And so it's not something that should cause us to doubt our faith, but actually to dig into it when we see stuff like this. Because there's a reason for it. There's a reason why Matthew wrote it the way he wrote it. There's a reason why Luke wrote it the way he wrote it. And Luke's purpose is to show us that Jesus is king. And so as they were drawing near, so he's on the donkey, they're all throwing their you know, cloaks on the ground. He's on his way down the Mount of Olives, which is right outside of Jerusalem. And the whole multitude of disciples start rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they have seen. This is like a stadium sound, okay? There's a huge group of people who've been kind of Jesus' entourage in addition to the 12 disciples, and they're going nuts at this point. Luke actually really likes to write it this way. He likes to write a loud noise of praising. I think he would have liked our worship. He would have been, been down. It was a loud noise, and they were celebrating, and they were excited because they're realizing Jesus is king, and they want everybody to know it, and they're singing about it because of the mighty works that he has done. They saw him do so many incredible things over the last three years, the things that they gave their lives to. They recently saw him heal a blind man, right? They, they saw him make a deaf person hear, a lame person walk. They saw him save the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. Isn't that crazy? Like just a few passages before, it says it's harder for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what does Jesus do? He got him into the kingdom, Right? They've seen him do mighty works, not just miracles, but also works of salvation, which is a miracle in and of itself. And so they're praising him and they're singing this song saying, blessed is the what? The king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a psalm that they're singing. Psalm 118. It would have been really normal for them to sing these songs actually during this time frame. There was like a group of songs. It was like a little EP it was like the King EP that they would sing during this time frame of the feast. And they're singing this song. And it's like a light starts to go off for them. Like, Wait a minute. Like, maybe Jesus is the king. And they start singing it about him. Now, I don't know a lot about sports. I don't pretend to know a lot about sports. I, I don't know how I made it here um, because you have to know a lot about sports. So check this out. Uh, this is LeBron, right? Okay, now I know I'm in like warrior land or king's land, right? So I'm going to tread carefully on this one. But look, the Cavs in like the 2015 to 2016 like NBA final, they won and they came back from something that had never been come back from before. Right? It was an unprecedented victory that they won. And LeBron, he made it easy for me. He calls himself the king. King James, he's like, I did it. And he did. Like, if you look at the points, he put the team on his back and carried them through. It was crazy. Right? And he won. And they're celebrating. And people are going nuts because they haven't seen something like this before. They're excited. And then you got these pesky warriors. You see him back there? He's kind of looking, looking at the king, a little disappointed. For Luke, that's the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, they're standing in the crowd. They're not excited that the calves just won. And they say this to, to Jesus. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's like a nice Christianly way of saying, shut your mouth. Like, they're like, stop it. Stop being excited about it. It's time to quit that. And the reason why, there's a lot of layers to it. 
Part of it is a political reason. Because in their time, they were under Roman rule, okay? So they have these Romans that are ruling over them. They have this puppet king named Herod. And what was happening was, is they were afraid that they could have shaken up something and the Romans would have brought down the hammer on them. Because they start proclaiming that Jesus is king. Well, that's totally violating this cult of the emperor where they worship the emperor as king. So they're worried about that. But they're also more worried about this like spiritual claim that they're making. That Jesus is this promised Messiah, And they would have known what that meant because that song was sung for them every year during this time. And now they're attributing it to Jesus. And so they're not happy about this. They want Jesus to stop. And then Jesus looks at him and says this, which is one of the coolest sayings in Scripture. If these guys stop talking, the stones will do it for him. Like rocks will sing out. Rocks themselves will cry out if the disciples aren't doing this because you know what? Jesus is king and nobody can say anything about it. Nobody can change it. And so as he's entering Jerusalem, they're trying to get him to stop. And I think the Pharisees thought they might have gotten him to stop at this point. Right? He's some like backwater carpenter from a little town called Nazareth where nothing good ever comes from. And they're looking at him, trying to get him to stop, trying to get him to give up. And he doesn't because he's in control and he has a mission that he's headed toward. And so Jesus is on his way there. And here's what's so cool. When you, when you read like Paul in Romans, he says this about creation. In Romans 8, all of creation waits and groans for the day that the Son of Man is like revealed in glory and makes all things new. How cool is that? That's, that's called natural revelation, that just the rocks themselves, the trees, the sky, the clouds, all of that points to Jesus. All of that points to there being a creator. And so even the rocks would cry out. And I think for the Pharisees, they're coming face to face with a reality that was not their expectation. The same is kind of true for the disciples. They're coming face to face with a reality that's not their, their expectation. Because for those of us, like I said, who know the rest of the story, it only takes them about a week. It only takes them about a week for them to like stop crying, praise God, and start crying, crucify. And so Jesus didn't come to fulfill our expectations, but he came to meet our needs. And this is the need that they had. This is the need that we have, is that Jesus would sit on the throne. That's what we all need. That's our deepest need. And sure, the disciples, they had it right in this passage. They're proclaiming that Jesus is king, and and they're excited about it. But we know that it doesn't carry through for them until after Jesus actually comes back, until after he beats death and sin and rises from the dead. But Jesus is telling them that he is God incarnate when he comes in. Like he, He actually makes a beeline for the temple which would have been kind of like weird if you were a conquering Messiah. You'd probably go for like the king. Instead, he goes to the temple because he had something to say about the heart. He had something to say about spirituality and where they were placing their trust and their faith in, and he goes straight for there. We're gonna spend a lot of time unpacking that battle between the Pharisees and Jesus in the temple. But Jesus has something he's working toward and he's running toward. And so here's the deal. I have some questions that we've got to kind of ask ourselves as we go through a text like this. And the first one is this, is we've got to kind of ask this question of our expectations versus Jesus's reality. Are we only interested in Jesus on our terms or are we willing to put him on the throne of our heart? Like, do we just want him the way that, that we want him where it's this input output formulaic, here's how I do this so that this happens? Or do we actually want him to be king? Because let's not miss this. There was joy 
Right? The disciples were pumped. They were singing. They were celebrating because of who Jesus is and who Jesus was and what he was going to do. They were so joyful from that. And joy is a gift from God. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to give us joy. He didn't have to make sunsets cool. And yet he chose to do that. And he chosen to draw us to himself through this deep-seated need and desire that all of us have to pursue our joy, to pursue our happiness. It can only be found in him. And we've got to be okay with that reality that he's actually on the throne. The next one is this. Have we made Jesus in our image? I had a friend who, um, he was taking this class on the Gospels, right? So Bible college, you take a class, get to learn about Jesus for like 16 weeks. It's sick. So he's doing this class on the Gospels. And his professor hands out this, like, um, this test. And it had 10 questions on it. And they were all like kind of theological, ethical questions. Like, you know, what do you believe about God? And what do you think about this kind of playing out of morality? And so the class, the students, were supposed to write down their beliefs on it. So they go, they write it down, they turn it in. And then next week, the teacher hands out another test. Same 10 questions, but the question now was, what do you think Jesus would say about these ideas? And 90% like, had Jesus agree with their thing. Weird. So, somehow he agreed with, with everybody's stuff, and they didn't agree with each other. So something's happening here where somebody was putting their perspective of who God is onto God instead of getting their perspective of who God is from God himself and applying that to their life. This is really easy to do. I do it all the time. Man, it's easy for me to think of God in, the, in a box of a framework of, okay, well, I know he heals this way or I know that he like, does salvation this way or I know that he reaches people this way. And yet God is God. And as much as we want to try to put him in a box, he's going to be who he is regardless because he's king. And so we've got to come face to face with, have we made him in our image? Or are we actually seeking to know who he really is? And the people in this story are going to be disappointed, right? The people from this text are going to be disappointed because Jesus isn't going to go and throw down on the emperor. Jesus isn't going to go and set that up this time. Instead, he goes in to defeat sin and defeat death so that we might have a relationship with him, so that we might find joy in him. So the question is, who's on the throne of our heart? And part of the way that we know what we believe about this is this question here, is do we live like Jesus is in control? Do we actually live that way? Like he is in charge? Because I know it's, it's hard to do that. It's actually hard to, to make a calendar and then, like, after you're done, like, making your calendar for the week, you're like, oh, like, what about God? Or, or, or did I submit that plan to the Lord? Or did I say, all right, God, here's my blocks of time for this week. Can you just kind of bless this? We say that a lot here at Vintage Grace, right? Like, we don't want to bring plans to the Lord and ask him to bless them. We want to come to the Lord so that he would give us the plan and let us live it out that way. So the bottom line is this, is whether you like it or not, Jesus is king. He is. And he's on the throne. And he's reigning. And he has a plan for your life. And, and he's inviting you to himself to engage in a relationship with him. That's available to anybody who would respond to him. And there's this question that we use a lot at Vintage Grace. It says, um, it's, a, it's a quote from Tozer. And it says, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. What do we think about him? Do we know him for who he really is? Or are we projecting our expectations on him and not okay with the reality of who he is? The only way to know that is to dig into his word, to spend time with him, to spend time with other believers who will point you toward him. 
And it's from that place that we reach out to others. It's from that place that we, we develop that joy and that trust in him and that love for him that that spills out into our relationship with those who are yet to believe. Because it's not just for us. We're not the only people who need Jesus on the throne. Everybody does. Everybody needs him on the throne of his life. And the other side of that question of like, what do you think about God? Is what does God think about you? And here's the good news of the gospel. He loves you. He fully knows and fully loves every one of us in this room. And he's inviting you to himself. And for those of us who treasure him and who follow them, he has called us sons and daughters of the God most high. How cool is that? That he loves us and he's called us to follow him. And so this morning, we're gonna sing a song about what we believe, about who God is. And there's this line in the song that says, he descended into darkness and rose again in glorious light forever seated high. That's our king. That's our king who came into this world, who lived the perfect life without sin and died on the cross, rose again, and now he's seated in heaven on his throne. So what I want us to think about as we worship this morning is, is he on the throne of your life? Because whether he's on the throne of your heart or not, he's on the throne in heaven. And that's a reality that we've all got to come to face with. So let's worship him this morning in view of who he is.